After Yosef reunites with his brothers, he immediately moves to step two, which is planning their move to the land of Mitzrayim. In Imperik Memvav, Pasak Lamed Beis, the Torah tells us that Yosef says, I will tell the Egyptians, I will tell Paro that my family is here, that they are joining me, and that they are shepherds, they are men of cattle, of flock, and that they are going to bring all their cattle, all their livestock down to Egypt. Then Yosef continues to coach the brothers, and he says, when Paro will ask you, what do you do for a living? You should tell them, we are people who work in cattle. We have been cattlemen from our whole lives. It's in the family, it's in the Mesorah, this is our tradition. And why should you do this? The Pasuk concludes, So that you should be able to settle in the land of Goshen. Because every shepherd is an abomination to Egypt. The question which numerous Mepharshim deal with is really either one or two parts of a question, which is to say, why is it so important for Yosef to make sure that Paro knows that his brothers are shepherds? Why is it so important that they be allowed to live in Goshen? That seems to be clearly a goal. And as an attendant question, what exactly does it mean and how does it play a role when Yosef predicts that uh, a relevant factor will be that shepherds are a toiva, an abomination in Egypt? So Rashi, in his comments here on the Pasuk, seems to imply that the focus on the fact that they are uh, men of cattle and that they can hopefully live in the land of Goshen, you need it. That's the land of all of the land in Egypt. That's the best for you. In other words, Rashi seems to be saying it's simply a fact that this will be better for you. This is what you do for a living, and therefore this land will see, simply be better. In you know, certain professions, if they were computer programmers, it might not matter where they lived. But given the, their profession, and given the topography, and uh, I guess other factors in Egypt, so this was simply the best place, the good place for grazing. Moreover, emphasizes that this is your skill, so that Paro will not be tempted to kind of keep you around. Uh, on the comment that uh, the Torah makes that uh, shepherds were toiva, so Rashi doesn't elaborate too much, but he does add uh, something which all the other Mepharshim, most of the Mepharshim uh, take their cue from Rashi, and he says that because the Egyptians, as Chazal seemed to tell us, were people who worshipped a cattle or worshipped uh, the calf, uh, and therefore... It's the implication, Rashi does not say this explicitly, does not tease it out, but it sounds like they look down on shepherds because those are the type of people who didn't show proper respect uh, to their deity. The Abar Banal and uh, similarly Rabbeinu Bachaye take a second approach. And here the emphasis is that not just because it happens to be the, the honest truth, the mitziut, that the Jewish people's good profession, what they're good at is shepherding, that's how they make a living, but more than that, there is a advantage and a goal that Yosef sees, which is more spiritual for the brothers, if they can keep this profession and not be otherwise drafted into some other profession. And that is because shepherding is a simple and humble way to make a living. It's better for them. Moreover, as Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar emphasizes, it has both physical and spiritual benefits. It produces meat, milk, and wool without that much effort. And at the same time, 
It also allows for isolation. You can be away from bad influences. You have time to contemplate, to spiritually develop. And it's not a coincidence that some of our greatest leaders like Moshe, Shmuel, Shaul, and David spent uh, some time in their career as shepherds. That is the second approach of the Abar Benel and Rabbeinu Bachaye, that the real emphasis is not so much financial as much as it is that it's simply a better spiritual profession and location for them to live in. The two other approaches I'd like to share are both very, very fascinating, I think, and uh, to me, somewhat uh, original, or mechudash. The third approach is the Ramban. The Ramban is sensitive to the fact that in Pasuk Lamadal, there seems to be a double uh, Lashon that we refer to um, the people that they're not only Anshe Mikne, but they also uh, have they have lots of cattle. Anshe Mikne, Hayu, Vitsonam, Ubkaram, Vacholashel, Hem, Heviu, Amartam, Anshe Mikne, Hayu, Avadech, Aminarenu, Kamavasenu, etc., etc. Why the repetition of this idea? So the Ramban says that actually what the was Yosef was getting at was not that they were actually the shepherds, but rather, as we might say, they were in the cattle business. But they weren't actually shepherds. They had servants for that. According to Ramban, Yosef is emphasizing how wealthy the brothers are, that they are important, that they are impressive, that they are wealthy. And, you know, even nowadays, if someone, if you ask somebody what they did for a living, they say they're in cattle, you wouldn't assume that they themselves are working uh, down on the cattle farm. You would assume, presumably, let's, just, let's say if they were wearing a suit, uh, you wouldn't assume that they were the actual shepherds or cattle ranchers, per se. So that's what, exactly what the Ramban says, that he was emphasizing not that they actually were shepherds, but that they have servants for that. But he only wanted to mention anything that would Dafka bring them honor. And this was a way of showing how they were very wealthy. Of course, what's left totally unexamined, uh, the Ramban does not comment, is on the comment about Tovas Mitzrayim. How would this help and how does this bring the family honor if they, Mitzrayim looks down on people who are shepherds? So perhaps the answer is, I'm only speculating, but it's actually an interesting idea that you can find in the Zohar, among other places. They suggest that this is actually a euphemism, that Toavas Mitzrayim is a euphemism from the Torah's perspective of a pagan deity, but rather the Egyptians used to keep them far away from shepherds because they held them in very high esteem, because they were the attendants of their deity. They were like the priestly caste. It's a completely different idea than usual, and actually, I think, would fit very nicely with Ramban. Last but not least is the Chizkuni, who emphasizes they have lots of cattle, so they'll be very busy, they'll have no time to be ministers and otherwise work in the palace, and that Yosef wanted to keep them out of the palace because he was worried that if they were in the palace near him, they might bring him down, and the old jealousy that they had for him might resurface. Quite fascinating, and really goes to the drama of the brothers' relationship. In what was undoubtedly one of the happiest and most exhilarating moments of Yaakov's life, he finds out the incredible news that Yosef, his beloved son, is still alive. After 22 years of mourning for Yosef, the brothers come back to Eretz Canaan, and we read in Perak Memhei, Psukim Chavav, through Chavzayin, V'yagirulo Lemor, and they tell Yaakov the following, Od Yosef Chai, Yosef is still alive. And not only that, Chihumoshel B'chol Eretz Mitzrayim, he is the ruler of the entire land of Egypt. However, despite this incredible, mind-bogglingly good news, the Torah tells us of Yaakov's shocking reaction. He had a turn of heart. He didn't 
believe them. So the brothers continue. They repeat, verbatim as they could, everything that Yosef had told them to tell their father, how it all had been orchestrated by Hashem. He was sent down to Egypt so that he would be able to provide for the family. And then not only did they tell that to him, and then Yaakov sees the wagons, which the brothers had brought with them, that Yosef had sent them in the return from Egypt, that Yosef had sent to transport them, and only then, finally Yaakov is, his spirit is revived, he believes them, and of course we can only imagine the joy which is contained in Yaakov's heart at that moment. The clear implication of the Sukkim is that the aha moment for Yaakov was when he saw the wagons. And of course, on the level of Pshat, this is very, very hard to understand. Therefore, we're aware of the famous Chazal that Rashi quotes, that in fact, Simon Masar Lehem Bamashaya Osek Beparshat Egla Arufa. Using a play on words from the word Agalot of wagon can be revowelized to sound like Egla, like a calf. This is a reference, says Rashi, to the famous ritual and mitzvah of Egla Arufa, the halacha that if an anonymous victim of a murder is found somewhere in between two towns, we don't know who it is, we don't know the circumstances of his death, we measure to the closest town to the dead body, and the leaders of that town, the greatest rabbis, the elders of that community, go out to a valley, and they perform a whole ritual in which they declare uh, the fact that they uh, are not guilty for the actual murder, but accept a certain level of responsibility. The details of the tekes of the ceremony, and it is certainly a complicated one to understand, are not for now. But says Rashi, that's the last thing that Yaakov and Yosef are learning together before Yosef was sent to look for his brothers. And we all know how it went from there 22 years later. Only now there's a, the beginning of a reunion. So says Rashi, Yaakov had, Yosef was sending a message to Yaakov. You see, I see in these wagons, Agalot, I'm, it's my proof that it's really me. It's a proof of life that it's really me because that play on words, Agalot and Egla Arufa. That is the Rashi, that is the incredible Chazal explaining Yaakov's change of heart while he's finally convinced when he sees the Agalot. Rav Nissan Alpert, in his beautiful Sefer, Limude Nisan, says, I don't understand. Why did we need to wait until this proof with the wagons? Why wouldn't Yaakov have believed the brothers right away? Why would they have lied about something like this? That makes no sense. Plus, there's so many other aspects in the story which are circumstantial, but still actually point to it being Yosef. After all, he knew their names. He knew the age order of the brothers. He spoke Lashon HaKodesh. He was circumcised. Of course it was Yosef. As incredible as that is, what possible reason would the Agalot have to tip the scales all of a sudden now, Yaakov believes. So Nissan Alpert explains that this goes to the essence of the Egla Arufa ceremony. This ceremony with the elders saying, Yadenu lo adam hazeh, the elders, the rabbis of the city coming out and saying, we did not murder this person. Did anyone really think that they did? And the answer, says Rav Alpert, is of course not. But the essence, the heart of this uh, ceremony and this mitzvah is, kol yisrael arevim zebazeh, the idea of collective responsibility that every Jew must have 
for each other, especially the leaders, but really it includes every Jewish person. And therefore, every Jew, no matter their position, but especially the leaders, bear some level of responsibility. They may not have, so to speak, pulled the trigger. But if one person is guilty, and if there was one horrible crime in the Jewish people in Am Yisrael and Eretz Yisrael, then everyone is somewhat guilty, and especially the leaders of the closest town. This message, dramatically expressed through the ceremony and mitzvah of Egla Rufa, says of Alpert, this was the essence of Yosef's life. Everything he did was about feeling his feeling of achrayas, of responsibility for the family. When he told his father about how the brothers were disrespecting the children of the main servants, he did so even though he knew he'd be resented, because he felt that that was what he needed to do for their benefit. When Yaakov sent him to check on the brothers, even though he knew how they felt about him, he did it anyway, because he felt he had an achrayas. And therefore, says Dustin Alpert, now we can understand what's happening. When the brothers here come and tell Yaakov, after 22 years, Yosef is still alive, and in fact the rule of Egypt, Yaakov is completely shocked, understandably so. If he's alive, how come he never visited? How come he never came to tell me that he was still alive? And even if somehow I can believe that he is alive, is it possible he's the same Yosef? Could he have lived in the filth and the impurity of Egypt and still be the same Yosef? Didn't he, did he forget the lesson of Ahrayas that I taught him that he was raised with? What had, why, why had he not done something sooner to help us? Even if he's alive, he's not the son I knew and loved. But when they tell Yaakov that Yosef said that he knows that this was all orchestrated by Hashem, and it was all for the purpose of helping the family. And then when he sees the wagons, then he knew that Yosef was not just alive physically, but spiritually. He understood that divine providence had caused this exact sequence of events, and that Yosef was truly not only alive, but still the same Yosef Atzadik. He had never forgotten the lessons of Egla Rufa. He had never forgotten the lessons of personal achrayis, of responsibility for the family, responsibility for his fellow Jew. That is the lesson of Egla Rufa. That was the heart of Yosef. And now Yaakov knows he's not just alive, but he's the same Yosef. In addition to the power and the drama on a human level of the story of Yosef and his reconciliation with his brothers, Chazal in the Medrash also see a deeper allusion in this interaction between Yosef and his brothers to future national events, significant events, both good and bad, that will affect the Jewish people, Jewish history, on the biggest scale. We read in Perak Memhei, Pesach Yedalid, after Yosef has already revealed his true identity, a little bit providing context for the past and the difficult times that they had experienced as a family, as well as setting the tone for the optimistic future, how Yosef will be able to help them and take care of them, etc. We then read in Pasuk Gedalid, that Yosef fell on the neck of his brother Binyamin, and he cried, and similarly, Binyamin fell and cried on Yosef's neck. And Interpreting this Pasuk on a deeper level, the rabbis in the Medrash, Rabbah in Parsha Tzadi Gimel, and this is in part uh, mentioned in a more abbreviated way by Rashi here on the Pasuk, they see in this act of, again on a simple level, a mutual brotherly love and an outpouring of raw human emotion, they see in this a deeper uh, prophetic uh, image and lesson. And they are clued into this by the fact that, as uh, the Medrash points out, the language of Tzavarei, that Yosef cried on Tzavarei Binyamin, is actually a very, very difficult lashon. Tzavar 
is a neck. Tzavarov could also be in the singular a neck, uh, a single a single neck. But tzavare, uh which is not such a typical uh, conjugation to begin with, uh, would seem to be referring to something in the plural, which leads the Medrash to ask, excuse me, did Binyamin have two necks that the Medrash says that Yosef cried on Tzavarei Binyamin? He didn't have two necks. Why the plural conjugation? Therefore the Medrash concludes that there's something else going on. El Amor Abelazar ben Padas, Yosef Ra'a Baruch HaKodesh, Sheshnei Bete Mikdashos, Asidin Libanos V'chakal Shel Binyamin, Atidin Lecharev. That Yosef at this very moment had a prophetic vision and he saw that one day in the future when his descendants, his brother's descendants, when Am Yisrael will eventually be in the land of Israel and they will build the base of Mikdash, not once but twice, and the location of that base of Mikdash will at least in part be in the tribal lands and the Shevet of Binyamin. Part of it was in Yehuda, but part of it was in the land belonging to the tribe of Binyamin. But unfortunately, for all the happiness and heyday that that would herald, but unfortunately, both of those Batei Migdash would eventually be destroyed. And when he thought about it, that moment, the ultimate and future destruction of the two temples, Yosef was moved to tears. Once, having established that there's a lot more going on here than meets the eye, Yosef's tears were not just over meeting his brother, but over this future cataclysmic event in Jewish history, the Medrash says similarly, when the Pasuk continues, that Binyamin cried al-Tzavarav on his, on Yosef's neck, so that was also in a similar vein, Rosh Mishkan Shiloh Yosef Binyamin too was crying for the same reason, because he saw with prophetic vision that one time in the future, the Jewish people are in Israel, we know before the base of Mikdash was built, they had the temporary Mikdash, what we call the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and it moved from place to place. But for a significant amount of time, 369 years, it was in the city of Shiloh, which is in the tribal lands, the area of the Shevet of Yosef, specifically Shevet Ephraim. And therefore, Binyamin at that moment sees that the Mishkan will be for so many years in the land of Yosef, but the Mishkan too will be destroyed, and that is why he is crying. What is really fascinating is that the Medrash then continues, and having thus established that tears in this otherwise seemingly straightforward human drama are actually about a lot more than just the human emotion, but rather prophetic allusions to future events in Jewish history, the Medrash then turns our attention back to a Pasuk that appears a little bit earlier in this same story, right before Yosef revealed himself, at the very outside of our Parsha, when he's overwhelmed with emotion, and he finally decides the time has come to pierce the veil, to show his true self and admit that it's really him. So the Torah tells us, He immediately just gives forth tremendous tears, he cries, the Pasuk continues and says that the whole house of Paro, the whole Egypt, heard his tears, and it's then, immediately afterwards, after he cries tremendously, we read among the most famous words in the entire Torah, Ani Yosef Ha'od Avichai. We have the big reveal. But here, having again focused on the tears at the later point in the story of Binyamin and Yosef hugging each other and crying, and explaining the deeper message therein, the Medrash now turns to that first set of tears, when Yosef was crying to himself, 
filled with emotion before the actual reveal. And the Medrash similarly assumes that just like the subsequent crying of Yosef and Binyamin was also about a national event as understood by prophetic means, so too this initial crying of Yosef also has an additional national significance. What is that? So says the Medrash so beautifully, just like Yosef didn't reconcile with his brothers without first crying, the crying was a medium for the reconciliation. One day, after the destruction of the same Batei Mikdash, Hashem will eventually redeem us and bring the Geula and rebuild and bring the Jewish people back after the first destruction. The Pasuk says in Yirmiyahu, Paraklamet Aleph, Bebechi Yavau. They will come back through tears, and I will lead them back through their petition, through their prayers. But says the Medrash, you see here as well, that reconciliation can appear, appear, a, come through the crying, just like Yosef reconciled with his brothers, so to eventually Jewish people with Hashem. And I think this is such a powerful Medrash, both of these, because not only do you see the human drama playing out on a deeper national level, but also you see two different methods or two forms of tears. First we had the tears of sadness, but now we have the tears that are both happy and healing and reconciliation. After hearing Yehuda's impassioned plea, his selfless willingness to trade places with Binyamin, Yosef can simply no longer hold himself in. He just couldn't control himself. He had to reveal his true identity. After all the years apart and alone, he acknowledges his true identity and he immediately asks about Yaakov. Confronted with this startling revelation, the Torah tells us, The brothers were speechless, literally, unable to respond because they were so shocked and so ashamed. Commenting on this pasuk, the Medrash embraces Rabbah makes a fascinating observation. Oy lanu miyom hadin, oy lanu miyom atochacha. Woe is to us from the day of judgment, woe is to us from the day of rebuke. In other words, the Medrash explains, if this is how the brothers reacted to Yosef's revelation, then how much more so should every one of us, should every person, fear God's ultimate judgment and revelation? It's a very, very powerful medrash. However, there are two very basic problems that would seem with this medrash. Number one, what's the double language? Yom Hadin and Yom HaTochacha. What's the difference between them? It is a central tenet of Jewish belief that there will be an ultimate day of judgment for every man and woman after 120 years where everyone will have to answer for his or her behavior. But since when does that also include tochacha, rebuke, a musr shmuz? Are we really also going to get rebuked by Hashem? What does that mean? What's the double language? There's two different days, the day of rebuke, the day of judgment. We never heard of such a thing. But the second question is perhaps even stronger, which is, while the basic lesson of the Medrashim is straightforward, still, it doesn't seem to make sense given the fact that the Medrash is assuming Yosef rebuked the brothers, and that serves as a paradigm for this oilanu. But the truth is that there is actually no mention in the text of any rebuke. It's actually quite remarkable. Yosef never rebukes or criticizes the brothers 
On the contrary, he goes out of his way, bends over backwards to explain to them that they shouldn't feel bad. This was all divinely ordained and orchestrated by Hashem, etc., etc. At that point, he hadn't done anything that would give them any indication. It's true, subsequently, he mentions the fact that they sold him into slavery. But even that is not a direct rebuke. Maybe you could say he was hinting at it. Maybe he was being passive-aggressive. Maybe. But there's no explicit rebuke. And at this point, the verse that the Medrash is working off of, he hadn't even revealed, excuse me, he hadn't even mentioned the sale, uh, the fact that he was sold. All he has done is reveal his identity. We might have expected him to come with some stinging critique or rebuke, but he didn't. So where then does the Medrash glean this teaching from? So because this is such a powerful Medrash, and these questions are so difficult, it's not a surprise that there are many, many different theories and explanations and interpretations by the various Mepharshim. But I'd like to speak with you and share with you one in particular, which has always made a very profound impact on me. I have to say that if I'm not mistaken, I believe I heard about this uh, idea uh, first when I was, I think this was 27 years ago. So I can't tell you I remember things from a few days ago or a week or a month ago, but this Devar Torah, which I first heard 27 years ago, I have never forgotten. And it comes from the Hasidic Sefer Shem Mishmuel, which is the Sukkachava Rebbe, and he explains as follows. From the moment that Yosef revealed himself, from the brothers' perspective, their entire worldview had come cra- and, and, and self-image came crashing down. Yosef was not only alive, he was second in command in Egypt. This was living, incontrovertible proof of the validity of Yosef's dreams. And more importantly, this demonstrated the error of their judgment and the error of their treatment of their brother. And not only did they realize their mistakes, Yom Hadin, but they also came to the crushing realization of the time and the potential lost. How different could and would things have been had they correctly evaluated and judged Yosef all those years ago? How much could all of them have accomplished over the previous 22 years had they not made such a catastrophic error? As the Shemi Shmuel says in his words, They were overwhelmed with shock and with grief. When they realized their own mistake, that was a crushing, crushing realization. And then continues the Shemi Shmuel, that very judgment, so to speak, that they kind of made on themselves because they realized their own mistake, that very judgment became the only rebuke they needed. And boy, was that a powerful rebuke. Ayom HaTochacha. Because the greatest rebuke that a person can ever receive is his own realization of his potential unfulfilled. Kishemaran lo la'ada mahu v'adkama gedula nishmaso when a person will realize how great they really could have been, what their true potential was, and how they didn't live up to that, when you see that, a person will be completely, completely ashamed. This, says the Shemi Shmuel, is the message for us, and the ultimate woe is to us, the day of judgment, the day of rebuke. There aren't two days, and God's not going to ream us out. He's not going to criticize us. He won't need to. By just seeing the truth, seeing the justice of Hashem's judgment and how we have fallen short, that will be the ultimate rebuke as we realize, and there's nothing we can do about it at that time, the lost potential and what we could have been, what we didn't do.
says the Shemi Shmuel, Ubeemes, Mhayaha Adam Yodeya Umakir Erko, Hainu Lo Shuhubasar Vadam Rakdulas Malasovanishmaso, Shuvlohaya Khote Benafshaf. A person truly realized his or her potential, truly realized the greatness that lies beneath and within, a person would never make a mistake, would not, in fact, live short. We don't live up to our potential. And when we realize that, not only will we have to be honest about the judgment, but that itself will be the greatest crushing rebuke we can receive. When Yaakov brings his family down to Egypt, the Torah tells us that along the way he stopped and he offered karbonos to God, who is defined as Elokei Aviv Yitzchak, the God of his father Yitzchak. It's a somewhat surprising even awkward phraseology, what happened to Avraham, why is he leaving out Avraham, only mentioning his father Yitzchak, and Rashi quotes the tradition that we have from the Medrash, that in fact, the reason Avraham is left out is to teach us that there's more honor that is obligated that a child show parents than honor towards a grandparent. Since the primary kibbutz is towards the parent and not the grandparent, therefore to hint at that, to teach us that halacha, it Davka mentions his father Yitzchak, and doesn't mention his grandfather, Avraham. That's where this comes up in the Parsha, and it really raises the question, is it in fact true from a strictly speaking halachic perspective, is it true that there is an obligation, perhaps on a lower level, but there is an obligation to honor grandparents? That would seem to be the impression you get from Rashi and from the Medrash, but as we shall see in a moment, in fact it's a major debate between the poskim. The Maharik, Yosef Colon, so many hundreds of years ago, he argued that in fact, strictly speaking, there is no chiv. There's no obligation. You should treat all people with respect. You should certainly treat all elderly people with respect. But there's no specific obligation for grandchildren towards their grandparents. On the other hand, the Ramah, no less an authority than the Ramah, both in his Shulchan Aruch as well as in his Tshuvas, he disagrees, and he poskins that there is an obligation of kavod for grandchildren towards their grandparents. And one of his two main sources is actually the Medrash and the Rashi from our Parsha. You see from this that albeit on a lower level than a child has towards his or her parents, but grandchildren do have an obligation, a mitzvah of honoring the grandparents. And you see that from Rashi, as we pointed out when we read the Rashi. More, furthermore, he points out there's a halacha that says in certain circumstances, a grandfather would be obligated to teach his grandchildren Torah. So says the Ramah, you see that there is some kind of a parental relationship, parental quote-unquote, uh, from the halachic perspective in viewing grandparents and grandchildren. And that halacha that the grandparent has to teach Torah, that's from the top down. But if that's true, says the Ramah, it would also be true from the bottom up. And therefore, if, just like the grandparent may have to teach Torah to the grandchildren, the grandchildren have to honor the grandparent. So that is the kind of black and white, if you will, two extremes, is there a mitzvah or not? The Marik says no, and in fact the Ramah rules yes. Fascinatingly, there is a, a third position which has its own kind of a nuance, and this is offered by the Steichemed, who was one of the great Sfardi Chachamim, who about 100 years ago or so made his way to Hebron, as well as the first Sephardic chief rabbi of Israel, the Mishpatei Uziel, Rav Benzion Meir Chai Uziel. And these two great Sephardi Chachamim argue that on the one hand, practically speaking, yes, there is a mitzvah of grandchildren to honor their grandparents, but not because there's an independent mitzvah as if they're your parents to honor your grandparents, but rather 
as a function of your mitzvah to honor your parents. One of the ways you show honor for your parents, they argue, is by honoring their parents, your grandparents. And I think it's a fascinating insight, and there's no question as a reality, as an intuitive point, it's commonsensical, it's compelling. The question is whether it's also halachic. And they argue yes. So practically speaking, you have to honor your grandparents. But not because you have an independent obligation to honor them, rather through your honoring of your grandparents, you're really showing honor and respect to your parents. And again, as I say, on a common sense, intuitive level, we totally get that, right? If you would see your children disrespecting your parents, their grandparents, but your parents, it would upset you terribly. So part of the way your children show you respect is by honoring your parents and their grandparents. That's their argument. The Ramah, on the other hand, says no. There's an obligation to honor your parents independently. It may also be true that by them honoring your parents, you feel respected. That's true. But it's more than that. According to the Ramah, you have a direct, independent obligation to honor your grandparents as if they're on some level your parents. And then the third approach on the opposite extreme, according to Marik, saying no, there is no special obligation whatsoever of grandchildren towards grandparents. The practical ramifications that emerge from this machlokas are really quite fascinating. I mean, let's leave aside the Maharik for a second. The Maharik said, again, that there is no obligation. Okay, fine. But even within the two people who said that there is an obligation, there was this debate. Is it an independent obligation that that's a form of parental relationship? Or is it that by honoring your grandparents, you're really showing honor to your parents? That question is not just uh, hypothetical or even rhetorical, there actually are practical ramifications. I can think of two specifically. What if, Rahman al-Litzlan, the parent dies? So there's still the grandparent and the grandchild, but the sandwich generation, the middle one, the parent passed away. Does the grandchild still owe honor to the grandparents once the parent has passed away? Well, if it's an independent obligation, then despite the tragedy, the halachic uh, reality will be unmoved and unchanged. But if the only reason the obligation is to honor the grandparents, that only reason is because that's a function of how I honor my father is by honoring his parents. How I honor my mother, maybe is by honoring her parents. Well, if unfortunately, tragically, there's no father, there's no mother, then presumably there would be no obligation, technically speaking, to honor the grandparents. But if it's an independent obligation, that would even survive the death of the parent. A second and less morbid uh, nafkamina practical ramification would be, could the parent be mochel? Could the parent, again, doesn't sound like such a realistic case, but let's say hypothetically, could a parent say, don't worry, you don't have to uh, respect grandpa. You don't have to treat grandpa with respect. Is it within the rights of the parent to forgive, to be mochel, the obligation you have to the grandparent? Well, that would also seem to be dependent on this question. If you view it as an independent obligation, direct from grandchild to grandparent, then the parent has no say in it. They certainly cannot wave it. But if you hold that the whole obligation to honor your grandparents is really because that's a way of showing honor to your parents, then really the ultimate source of the obligation is your parents, and they would have a right to wave, to be mochel on the obligation, and in fact, then you would not have to show respect to the grandparent because the parent was mochel. That would be a fascinating, fascinating question.